Well, good day, everybody. Good to be back here with you. My name's Peter. Not Peter. That if you're English, Peter, it's like Peter bread. Peter. Okay, that's how you say my name. I've known these guys more, more than just a couple of years, 40-something years. Have you got that photo of my wife and me when we, were, when we knew each other? <laughs> Man, I used to have hair. And, uh, and then, you know, you try and kind of stay up with the times, but apparently I'm out of the curve again. I was looking at Corey up here, and I think I have to put these jeans in the dryer and get some white shoes. Um, to kind of be kind of back in the curve again. (laughs) Okay, so I've got a message I believe the Lord put on my heart as I was praying about today for you. Uh, Who are the intercessors here? Who who are people that you know God's called you an intercessor? Okay, you, you have such a key role. I want to speak to you about all of us because God has given to all of us this charge. So the title of my message is Creating with God. So let me, let me read a little blurb to you first. You know what a blurb is? It's a thing you read to people. Um, it's the middle of the night. I've been sleeping for a few hours. Suddenly I'm awake. Nothing is wrong but I find myself unable to just roll over and go back to sleep. As I lie there in limbo, a distinct impression comes to my mind. Get up and pray. My flesh immediately counters, that cannot be God. I rebuke that thought. (laughs) I toss around for a few more minutes, and again the mental call comes to go downstairs and pray. I look at my alarm clock, such tiny red numbers 1.23 1.23 a.m. My electric blanket is on six. <clears throat> Not in Florida, but I am baking golden brown, and I begin to make my appeal. Lord, you know I've been exhausted lately. I'm sure that if I get up, I'm going to one day die of a heart attack. There is no response. I gradually become aware of a sense of conviction, but it seems vague, so I try to ignore it. Then I take a different tactic. Lord, I'm almost asleep again. Almost, almost, but not quite. God, I know you're looking for someone to stand in the gap, but isn't there a place for someone who is willing to just lie in the gap? (laughs) Finally, I harden my heart and eventually fall back to sleep. In the morning, while I'm brushing my teeth, I remember last night's battle. Though I struggled to discredit its validity, The gnawing authenticity of what happened is overpowering. What have I missed? What life-changing exchange could have taken place? Creating with God. Okay, true story. I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor. Uh, I gave my life to the Lord when I was seven. I actually got baptized when I was a few days old. (laughs) Uh, Sprinkled my dad. We were Anglicans. Uh, and uh, later on, I got really baptized by immersion, which was amazing. Uh, I'll mention that here in a moment. But uh, I fell away from the Lord. I had like two years of totally going my own way. I loved traveling. I decided I'm going to travel around the world. So I, uh, I, I didn't have a whole lot of money, so I was going to hitchhike for part of that way. Now, you, you can't hitchhike out of Australia, so I had to uh, pay to get on a ship to Panama, hitchhike through South America, uh, 
flew over to the Netherlands. I was going to meet up with some friends uh, that were waiting for me in Greece, and we were heading over to Nepal and Afghanistan and, and India, uh, but I was arrested. Uh, I was put in jail, and uh, Christmas morning in jail, I woke up, and I was thinking about my family back in Australia, and I wondered what role my mother's prayers, and my parents, but my mum especially, what role her prayers played in the outcome of what took place. Two days later, they pulled me out of jail, told me to get my stuff, uh, or gave me my stuff. I then, uh, they got me on a plane, a KLM flight back to Sydney, and right after that, I went to this YWAM outreach for one week. My life was so radically changed. I got baptized in Lake Burley Griffin in Canberra, Australia. When I came up out of the water, I knew God had a calling on my life to preach. It was like right then I received something from God that's, that's lasted my whole life. And um, uh, does prayer change things? That's the, that's the question I want us to, to look at. I want us to address. Does it actually change outcomes? When I was in prison, I was or in jail, I was thinking back to the night before I left Sydney. My parents were having a Bible study, and I was sneaking out to spend time with my friends, and they spotted me and dragged me into the middle of this prayer group. Uh, not literally, they, but they made it clear I had no option, and uh, laid hands on me and prayed over me. And one of my mother's friends had this prophetic word over me, and I don't remember all of it, but I remember this part. Uh, my son, my hand will be upon you as you go, but you're not going to like it. Uh, nine months later, I'm sitting in jail, uh, and, and God redirected me back to him. You know, when the Bible says God works all things together for good, the word works, it makes it seem like God's going to do it without us, but the word works is the word energio in Greek, which means to energize. But he, he doesn't make us love him because love has to be our choice to be in love with him in response to his love for us. But he, he pushes us in his direction, and prayer is one of those things that does that. Spurgeon said, well, prayer changes you. And I know it changes us when we pray, but the question I had for years is, does prayer change outcomes? In my former pastor's guest bathroom, there's a plaque that says, prayer changes things. Well, what does it change? Is it, is it like this, that I'm going along in this direction and someone prays or I pray, but the direction still continues? Or is it like this instead, where I'm going in this direction and someone prays and things happen, things change, outcomes actually change. So when I came into Youth with a Mission, uh, we have what's called a discipleship training school and it's five months where you're three months having different teachers from around the world every week. And one of the teachers for me was this little lady from New Zealand called Joy Dawson. And Joy Dawson, uh, you remember Joy Dawson? We know Joy Dawson. And um, uh, Joy said something that just impacted me about prayer. She said this, if all of your faculties were taken away from you. So just imagine you've maybe been in an accident or something and you can't move any muscles in your body, except your mind is intact, okay? She said, if all of your faculties were taken away from you, except a sound mind, you could change the course of history through the ministry of intercession. 
Wow, I thought, man, that is incredible. She described intercession as creating with God. And, and her point was that God leaves some things unresolved so that we can partner with him to bring about his solution. Not because he couldn't do it without us, but he actually invites us to come in with him and be co-creators with him in the new things he wants to do. But it takes time in prayer and, and standing in the gap. And, and so, so Genesis 1.1, I want you to just think about implicationally what this scripture means. The first part of Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created. We'll stop there. Let me ask you, was that the last time? Was that the last time God created? Or is he still creating? He's a living God, right? So he's still creating new things. And if he is still creating new things, does he invite us to co-create with him? I want to suggest to you that he does in numerous ways. But prayer is one of these ways. So let's get a couple of things out of the way. Because um, sometimes we don't understand why something doesn't happen. We prayed for it. But isn't God in control of everything? Well, Let's talk about that. God is in control of history. He's God. He flung the stars into space. He is, you know, king of kings and lord of lords. Nothing escapes him. God is God. The direction of history is going to go his way. So, the rise and fall of nations. Daniel 2.21 says, he removes kings and establishes new ones. The current government here has been established by God. Every nation. Now, sometimes people, by their evil behavior, God allows for an evil ruler to come forth. Okay? But, uh, and I'm not saying anything about this right now, currently, but I'm saying this is what happens. God is ruling over the nations. Acts 17, 26 says he has preordained the times or preappointed the times and boundaries of every nation on earth. That's why... God simply says the direction of history is going to go this way. And some of it I'm going to make go that way. Okay? In the Bible, there are 31,000, according to J. Barton Payne's Encyclopedia on Biblical Prophecy, there are 31,173 verses in the Bible. The book you hold in your hand, that's how many verses? 8,352 are prophetic in nature. A quarter of the Bible is prophecy. How could that be? Every other major religious book is suspect for its lack of prophecy. They don't have any because it's not the living God. The Bible is full of it because this is the God of history, the God of creation, the living God. And sometimes God makes something happen so something else will not happen. It's the word lest. God intervenes when his will is not being done. The word lest means I'm going to do something so that something else will not happen. I'm going to fill up my car with fuel this afternoon so I won't run out of gas when I get to the airport. Or lest I run out of gas when I get to the airport. I'm not going to take a nap this afternoon lest I lay awake till 2.30 in the morning again. The Bible uses the word lest. Exodus 13:17. God led them by a different way, lest when they meet the Philistines, they would want to go back to Egypt. So God did something so something else would not happen. Genesis 4.15. You know you're on the right path when the pastor goes, right. Okay. God set a mark on Cain 
so someone wouldn't take his life. He set a mark on Cain, lest someone try to take his life. Judges 7-2. God told Gideon to reduce the size of his army, lest they give themselves the credit for the victory. It seems to me that God will even override human free will, if necessary, to accomplish his purposes. We find this in the Bible, too. There was a witch doctor called Balaam who wanted the money given to him to do what? To speak something over Israel. A curse. Okay? But when he opened his mouth, Nehemiah tells us, Nehemiah 13, 2, he opened his mouth to speak the curse. And what came out? A blessing came out. I mean, he must have been totally surprised. He's about to speak a curse and a blessing comes out. If someone was to say curses don't mean anything, why did God change the curse into a blessing? But God didn't ask his permission. He did this to accomplish his purposes. He did the same thing with Pharaoh. He hardened his heart to accomplish his sovereign purposes for the nation of Israel. And lest anyone feel sorry for poor Pharaoh, just remember, he hardened his own heart the first five times. And then God used him to accomplish his purposes. When someone hardens their heart to God, they become a candidate for God to use them without their permission. <laughs> Woo! Oh, that, that'll preach, okay? That dog will hunt. Okay, I'm learning American now. Um, <clears throat> so, we've got that settled, right? God is in control of history. Just because God is in control of history doesn't mean he controls every single event in history. I want to suggest to you, there are people who feel that he has. I don't believe that's what the scriptures tell us, that God is controlling everything that happens. Not everything is God's will. If you go into the scriptures, you dig into it, we see that some things happen that are contrary to his will. Because think of what this says about God's character. If everything is God's will, then God wants for some babies to be born deformed. And God wants for women to be raped. And God wants for there to be war and millions of refugees coming out of Afghanistan and Syria. Okay, is everything God's will? I don't think it is. And I want to show you from the scripture. So the book that Otis mentioned uh, came from a tragic event that happened in our ministry. A former student, bitter against God, had backslidden, came in opened fire with a 9mm pistol, shot four of our staff. Two of them died that night. Why? Why, God, would this happen? Uh, In people's minds, if God was truly just, bad things would only happen to bad people. How could the innocent suffer if God is a God of love? And so I began to look at this through the lens of Scripture, and I narrowed it down to 10 reasons there's suffering in the world. And one of them is human selfishness. God has given free will to human beings, and sometimes their choices go against his will. Where do you find that in the Bible? Everyone say, where do you find that in the Bible? Okay, well, I'm about to tell you. Okay, here it is. So, it led me on this pathway to investigate from a scriptural standpoint, going back into the original language about the will of God. What is the will of God? And I discovered there's actually two main words from which we get the will of God, that term. One of them is this word, bulamai. Bulamai means to plan with full resolve. Sometimes, related to the will of God, there are things that he has set in motion. No one can change those. By the way, sometimes they can be resisted. But in 2 Peter 3.9, God says that he is not willing that any should perish. 
He hasn't set in stone that anyone should perish. Wow, that's a game changer. But then there's another word for the will of God, and it's when God desires something. It actually is the word for God's pleasure or his wish. It's thelema. It's in this context of thelema where we, we read about the preferred will of God, what God wants to see happen, but sometimes it doesn't happen and it breaks his heart. Jesus told us to pray in, in, uh, in Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done. It's Thelema, your wishes. Why would God tell us to pray that if it's going to happen anyway? Evidently, he's calling us to pray that his purposes, his will, his wishes would come to pass. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, he says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I know there are times where I'm ungrateful. God has convicted me of those times. When I'm grumpy or I'm critical of someone, you know, before coffee in the morning usually. Uh, Well, if I'm ungrateful, I'm out of the will of God because it's his will that I walk in thanksgiving and gratefulness and gratitude. So some things happen that are against God's will. Uh, So with that in mind, separating these two things, God is sovereign, he's over all of history, but he doesn't control every single event that happens. Some things happen that break his heart. Where does prayer come in? Okay, so here is where prayer comes in. You're not going to, God doesn't want us to pray according to our own desires because we miss the mark. So even when you know something is God's will, you might still have to pray it into existence. It's not because he can't do it without us. It's not about his ability or inability. It's about his strategy. And evidently, he's left some things unresolved so that we can partner with him to bring about the solution that he wants. He's given us that degree of relationship and partnership and authority in prayer. Wow, incredible. Creating with him, the creator, the ultimate creator partnership with him. So Isaiah 118, God said to his friend, the prophet Isaiah, come, let's reason together. Wow, what, what, kind of a, what kind of a deal is that? How would you reason with God? I mean, God is saying to him, here, I'll use my mind, you use your little mind, and let's, let's think this thing through. Prayer is one of the ways I want to suggest to you that we reason with God. Isn't that what Abraham did in Genesis 18? God said, look, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because they're a wicked city. And, and, and Abraham said, but God, if there are 50 righteous, it wouldn't be like you. It wouldn't be just for you to do this. What if there are 50 righteous? And God said, okay, look, if there are 50 righteous, I won't do it. Okay, fine, but, but what about 45? Abraham, if there are 45, I won't do it either. Okay, then please don't be angry, but what about 40? Okay, 30, fine. What about 20? Okay, 22. What about 10? 10, yes, if there are 10. What was going on? Why did he stop at 10? I don't know why he stopped at 10. I think, knowing the character of God, he could have said five. What if there are five? Okay, fine. If there are five. And what about two? I think judgment could have actually been at least delayed from Sodom through his prayer. But even if it wasn't, six times the outcome was changed. Does prayer change things? Does it actually change outcomes? I want to tell you, I believe that our prayers are, like Joy Dawson said, significant in shaping human history. 
So, uh, some things, it seems, will only happen when someone prays. And if someone, if there's no intercessor, it won't happen. Ezekiel 22, 30 and 31. In verse 30, we see that the people were in sin. And God said, he intimated to his friend Ezekiel, he was looking for someone, a man who would stand in the gap and make a wall on behalf of the land. So God wouldn't have to destroy it, but he found no one. And so he brought destruction. The fact that God was looking for an intercessor meant an intercessor could have been found. And if there was an intercessor who was willing to pay the price in prayer, judgment could at least have been delayed, right? Isn't that what it's talking about? Wow, that's what standing in the gap is between them and God. Okay, making a wall. No, God, I know they deserve it. But somehow prayer allows God, who is completely just, he's impartial, but it allows him, if you'll allow this oxymoron, it allows God to be impartially partial. <laughs> because God, God, God did not just invent morality for humans. He himself live with, lives within those boundaries, those moral boundaries of right and wrong. He's the ultimate example of someone who lives what he preaches. He doesn't just tell us to do something that he doesn't do. That's the real reason Jesus came. I mean, God could have said, I'm not going to kill them. But there was a price for our sin. Jesus did it to satisfy the justice of God. Romans 8, 3 and 4 says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. So he wants to show mercy, but he doesn't do it at the expense of his justice. So people deserve his judgment. But prayer somehow allows him to retain the integrity of his righteousness and be partial in that situation for the person you're praying for, the people you're praying for. Whew, man, how incredible. Another scripture. Have you got more? Yes, I've got some more. Isaiah. Oh, say, everyone say Isaiah. Okay. That's, that was his name. 38. 1 through 5. Isaiah is the prophet. Hezekiah is the king. God says, go tell Hezekiah. His time's up. Set his affairs in order. I'm bringing him home. Hezekiah falls on his knees. God, I don't want to die. God taps Isaiah on the shoulder again. Go back and tell him, I've added 15 years to his life. Why does the Bible say God added 15 years if he was already going to live those 15 years? It was his prayer that made the difference. Wow, incredible. Exodus 32, 10 through 14. God says, okay, I have to bring judgment. Moses says, no, Lord, don't. Kill me instead. God says, leave me alone. <laughs> That's what he says in verse 10. Let go of me, actually, if you were to translate it literally from the Hebrew. Let go of me. You know, Moses is <laughs> metaphorically grubbing a hold of God. No, you can't do it. So God didn't bring judgment on them. He relented, which is the word for changing his mind. For some people, they go, but how could God change his mind? God doesn't change. No, listen, God doesn't change his character. He's always merciful and loving and just and kind and faithful. It's precisely because he doesn't change his character that he changes his mind. That was the case with Nineveh. The prophetic word was destruction was coming, but they covered themselves in sackcloth and ashes and they cried out to God and God changed his mind. Jonah 3.10. Okay? So, yes, that does happen. One last scripture regarding Moses, Psalm 106.23 says that God would have done it had not Moses intervened. Whew. 
Wow. He stood in the breach. God, in the gap. Okay, where's the gap? You see, this is really the will of God, but this is happening. So you stand in the gap on behalf of the people, on behalf of the loved one that you're praying for. God, give them more time. Okay, and you, you continue to witness and share with them. Okay, so I've got to land the plane here. Okay, so the ground rules of intercession. Here are some ground rules. Number one ground rule. God will never force anyone to love him. You can pray for them, but God is not going to force them to love him because it violates the principles of love relationship. You can love someone who doesn't love you, but you can't have a love relationship with someone who doesn't love you. It's impossible. There was a girl in high school that I really liked. Her name was Monica. Monica ticked all the boxes for me or checked all the boxes, okay? There was just one problem. Monica didn't find me attractive. What was up with that? <clears throat> Don't laugh so much. <laughs> I did. I looked like I was 10. He's got some photos of me baptizing some people. And who's that 10-year-old baptizing people? Um, so... Uh, Fortunately, I've seen photos of Monica on Facebook. <laughs> no, that's terrible. Okay, cut that, cut that out of the... <laughs> I, I ended up with Linda, and I'm happy about that. <laughs> okay, but just rewind, okay? Here I am in high school. I'm in love with Monica. Let's say for the sake of argument that I discovered this... The technology to implant a chip in Monica's brain while she was sleeping that would make her act and speak the way I wanted because I was the one who programmed it. Wouldn't that be amazing? Someone said yes. No. <laughs> no, it wouldn't because it would all be a sham, okay? It would be me loving me, not her loving me. For love to be real, okay, if you're writing this down, write this part. If For love to be real, it must be possible to choose against it even for God. And so God will put pressure on them to energize them, to turn them back to himself, but ultimately they have to get on their knees and surrender their hearts to the Lordship of Christ, okay? And God is not going to force them to do it. Second ground rule of intercession, God will not force anyone to love you. So if you have your own version of Monica here in the congregation, let's say you're a young man, Okay, single young man, and she's sitting across the room, and you've been praying this prayer, Lord, make her fall in love with me. I have a word for you this morning. Thus saith the Lord, yea, and behold, son, you're on your own. Mm. Mm. Number three principle. You've got to make sure you're praying according to God's will. Okay? Because if you're just praying your own prayers, you're missing the mark, James tells us. Jesus' younger brother, James, says you're missing the mark if you're praying according to just your own desires. So how do you know? Well, ask him. He's the living God. He'll speak to you. He might say no. That's what happened to this great man of God. 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9. Uh, three times he asked for the same thing. And finally, God said, stop asking me for that. It's not my will. 
I'm just going to give you my grace, but I'm not taking away the thorn in your flesh. Sometimes God does that, right? 1 John 5.14. This is the confidence we have in him. That if we ask anything according to what? His will. Okay, he hears us. So you've got to align yourself with his will. God, what do you want to do in this situation? And then pray and pray. And you want to skip to 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. You've got to pray, 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 and pray without ceasing. So the great evangelist George Mueller, I read about his intercessory life. And he had eight friends who were not saved. And he prayed, and one by one, they all came to Christ except one of them, who was just resistant to the gospel message. George Mueller said, he's going to come to Christ. I've been praying for his salvation for 63 years and eight months. How could it be otherwise? I am praying for him. George Mueller died at age 93, never saw his friend's conversion. What's up with that? Well, at his funeral, his friend was in attendance. And as they were lowering the casket into the ground, his friend fell on his knees and cried out, God, have mercy on a sinner like me. And he gave his life to Christ. Mueller never saw it with his own eyes, but he's going to one day. We're going to be there. Those of us who have faith in Christ, I want to see the look on his face when he spots his friend across the room. (laughs) It's going to be amazing. God answers prayer. He's faithful. He will answer your prayers. But faith, let me tell you what faith is. Faith is, two words, praying until, dot, dot, dot. Okay? You got to end it with an ellipsis. Faith is praying until. Don't stop. Do what Jesus is doing. He's praying for us 24-7. Right? So, Joan, when you woke up this morning, Jesus had been praying for you all night. Help her to be patient with her husband, Lord. I don't know what he's been saying with you, to you. But <clears throat> okay, so <laughs> could God do it without us? A hundred percent. He doesn't need us. He can do it himself. But that's not his strategy. Apparently, he wants us to join in partnership fellowship, relationship with him to bring about his purposes on earth. This is what it means to be the middle man or the middle woman. It's the one who's standing in the gap. Here are two keys to being that middle person that has power with God. The first, having a right heart. James 5.16 says that it's the prayer of the righteous that has great power. If there's something you need to get right, Make sure you get it right because that will be a hindrance to even God hearing you. I didn't put the scripture in there, but Psalm 66, 18 says that if we hold iniquity in our hearts, the Lord will not hear us. Okay, there's a barrier between us and him. And so you've got to make sure you're right with God. How? What would he convict me about? Just remember, conviction is specific. Condemnation is vague. If you just feel bad about something, that's not God. Conviction is specific because there's always a way to repent for it. And, uh, and so it'll be in the area of what's going on in my mind, thoughts or attitudes, my words, my actions. Those, those things, okay? Be right with God because your prayers are going to have great power. The second thing is accurate information. You've got to get the right information so you know how you're praying. So a couple of quotes, and then I want to close with a story and then hand it back to Otis. E.M. Bounds said this, prayer Works so well in crisis, it's a wonder why we don't implement it on a regular basis. 
Paul Bilheimer, prayer is the most important factor in shaping human history. All Hallesby, O-L-E, Hallesby, the Norwegian pastor, I love this. In prayer, the church has received the power to rule the world. If it would stay together on its knees, it would dominate world politics from the prayer room. John Bunyan of Pilgrim's Progress fame. When man works, man works. When man prays, God works. And the great South African writer, Andrew Murray, the ones who mobilize the church to pray, they will make the greatest contribution in history to world evangelization. And my favorite, Joy Dawson, if all of your faculties were taken away from you, except a sound mind, you could change the course of history through the ministry of intercession. Okay, so there was a guy who used to, back in the day, teach in our YWAM schools. He was a Scottish preacher called Duncan Campbell. If you thought my accent is hard to understand, you should have heard Duncan Campbell. Duncan Campbell, just mighty man of God, okay? And, and so one day, he is the, the keynote speaker at this large event, the plenary session of the whole conference. He's sitting up on the stage, and God speaks to him. This is in England. Duncan, I'm sending you to the Hebrides. The Hebrides are these islands off the coast of Scotland. Yes, Lord, Duncan says, I'll go. Thinking next week or in two weeks, the Lord speaks to him again. Duncan, I want you to go to the Hebrews now. Okay, Lord, just let me finish my message. I haven't preached the message you gave me. God, a third time, says, Duncan, I've called you to the Hebrews right now. So he turned to the guy that was organizing the conference. I mean, can you picture this? Thousands of people. The worship team is finishing up. Okay, hymns back then, singing, and he says, I need to leave. And he says, what do you mean? And the guy who's organized the conference, what, what do you mean? He says, God has told me I have to leave. Well, I'm, they're singing the last song. I'm about to introduce you. And Duncan Campbell said, well, I will be of no use to you here, for God has called me elsewhere. And he left. I don't know who preached that night, but it wasn't Duncan Campbell. Talk about obedience to the Lord. Probably was never invited back to that conference. <laughs> anyway, he gets on a ferry, gets across to the Hebrides, to the Isle of Wight. He gets off, and the dock there, he notices that there's a, a boy standing there, a 12-year-old maybe, and, and he says, uh, hey, do you know, my name's Duncan, do you know any churches around here? And the boy says, all the churches here are dead. But I know, I know that house up there is an elder of that other church over there on the hill. So... He hikes up, knocks on the door. A man opens the door. Brother Duncan Campbell, we've been waiting for you. They'd printed flyers about this, this, these revivals, these crusades they were having. They'd invited him, but apparently he never got the invitation, and God had to intervene. And I, he said, go down to that other house down there. That's one of the other elders. They're waiting for you for dinner. He goes down there, eat. He goes to church, preaches this powerful sermon. Do you know what happened? Nothing, nothing happened. So, <laughs> because our timing in God's is slightly off sometimes. And then after the meeting, they're standing around and someone comes running in. Quickly, come outside. And they come out and people are laying all over the parking lot like a bomb went off. But it wasn't a bomb. It was, they're groaning and crying. It was such intense conviction of sin. People fell on their knees. The first guy to get up from praying got up at 4.30 in the morning and Revival swept through the churches and spiritual awakening throughout the Hebrides Islands. Why? Why? Why did God do that? Well, later, 
Obviously, Duncan Campbell obeyed the Lord. The people organizing this thing did. But he meets these, this intercession group that's been praying. And two of the members were these two ladies who now one was, they're both very old. One was doubled over with arthritis. The other almost totally blind. And they'd been praying from 10 at night till 4 in the morning every night for 20 years for God to pour out his spirit on their land. And you know what? God ran the heavens and came down. Oh, boy. Prayer is the key to revival. It's one of the keys, one of the keys to revival. And I want to I wanna just encourage you. I believe the Lord wanted me to bring this rhema word to you for the intercessors and for others to hitch your ride to some of these intercessors and begin praying. I noticed when I was walking in, you have prayer every day at 9 a.m. or every office, uh, you know, weekday. Uh, pray because prayer makes a difference. Prayer, I believe, is creating with God. Prayer changes things. Yeah. Hallelujah. Amen.